The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Our guest this week is a Nashville-based singer-songwriter and cellist who Gas House Radio once called a once-in-a-generation artist and whose string arrangements were celebrated by Indie Shark as being, quote, nimbly delivered with virtuosity and grandiose charm. You can find out more about her work by visiting www.sarahclanton.com and patreon.com slash Sarah Clanton. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Clanton is here on the Break the Business podcast. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Thanks for having me today. I'm so excited to have you. And let me tell you why. We've had a wide array of musicians and industry experts and all across the gamut on this podcast. But to my knowledge, I don't think we've had a cello player before. And I welcome you for that. If for no other reason that you refer to what you do as I quote, and I quote here, cello braiding, which is just magical. Yes. <laughs> and frankly, I'm not sure why cello isn't more common amongst indie artists because, God, it's a beautiful sounding instrument. Thank you. Oh, man, I've been so excited to talk to you. I've just been counting the days, really. And thank you so much. It's funny, like, cello braiding has has been, like, a kind of a funny thing that's evolved on its own, almost. I did a Kickstarter in 2012, and for my first record, the title of it was, I must ask you a question, will you cello braid with me? And uh, it was about making my first record, and I, like, hit the mustache craze right before it got very popular, and so people started sending me things that were mustache and cello-shaped, and it was really fun. And, and the cello braiding thing is just really held on, and now I'm doing some uh, mermaiding on the side, and now people say celebrate. So ah. it's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, there's a lot of fun happening. <laughs> so how did it yeah. start for you? Were, were you one of these cellists who, as many cellists are, like you're doing the classical training thing from when, like, since you're in diapers and then you sort of fall into like indie folk pop music or did you kind of develop both together? Um, you know, I love that yes to all those things actually so yeah i um my father was a nuclear engineer and my mother was an opera singer music educator quilter just beautiful artist and um it still is uh they are both still among us <laughs> uh but um uh my i have like this really crazy left and right brain kind of combination and though i wasn't really great in math classes i did well in music and i started on piano when i was five didn't really like it and really, the cello kind of fell in my lap. Ha ha ha! Um, in fifth grade, I was living in Colorado, have for that. and, <laughs> and uh, I was out in Colorado, and they gave us what I like to call like a petting zoo of instruments in the gym, and they had us go around. I thought maybe I wanted to play the flute. I had been to a lot of performances um, because my mother was an opera singer. We used to go to a lot of productions, and my dad loved classical music and loved classical. Um, or like uh, loves like the oldies and and classical music and so there's a lot of that in my family and we would go to all these things and uh, just going to all of this I really loved the orchestra in the pit and I loved hearing the different instruments thought I wanted to play flute couldn't blow into it so I the next instrument in the petting zoo line was the cello and I sat down with it and 
uh, I was like, this is it. So I've been playing since I was nine and I went to college, got a classical degree, but I didn't really, really want to do classical. I mean, I loved it. I couldn't do what I do without it. Um, and then fast forward to 2009, I saw Ben Soli play with the Sparrow Quartet, which is Bela Fleck, Abigail Washburn, Casey Dreesen and Ben Soli. And they were like chopping on their instruments. And I was like, WTF, like, what is this? This is so cool. And uh, Ben Soli played a solo set on a, another stage, a solar powered stage. I organized a solar powered festival at the time in Greenville. And so I thought that was equally cool. And I saw Ben sing and play cello at the same time. He was covering Gnarls Barkley and Fiona Apple. And if I were a cartoon, a light bulb would have gone off over my head because <laughs> I was like, oh, I had been like trying to find something to sing with. I was attempting to write songs. I just discovered an open mic. I'm like 21 years old. And, um, but like was so scared. I'm telling you, I'd battle so much stage fright. But once I found that I could sing and play cello at the same time, it just felt right. And so I went and started uh, playing in other bands and, um, and I went solo in 2011 and moved to Nashville in 2014. Well, I, for one, love the way that the cello is weaved into a lot of your songs. It, it just really shines and I very much enjoy listening to your music. And let me say something about cellists, okay? That's <laughs> one of those instruments where if, if you're playing that instrument, you know that there is a true love and commitment there. And let me tell you why. I used to, I started out as a guitar player. That was my first instrument. And eventually I switched more to the ukulele because it was just too much of a pain to transport my <laughs> guitar everywhere. A cello is like 10 <laughs> guitars. And so if you're lugging that thing around all day, you must love that instrument. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, it's so funny. People are like, it's so interesting to me. I love like, don't get me wrong. Chivalry should never die. <laughs> um, but like when someone's like, can I carry your cello for you? I'm like, no, I got it. It's like, can you carry my purse for me? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but my, my luggage is so cool. And I was actually a lot crazier about it. Um, before about a year ago, year and a half ago, actually, I got a carbon fiber instrument. And so before then I had been touring with a 200 year old instrument for maybe a decade or more. And so, um, I didn't trust anybody to carry it because not that I didn't trust them, but you do not want to be responsible for any damages from accidentally dropping this cello, which I have done before. So um, it's been really, really great playing a um, five and a half pound cello that is uh, cleanable with Windex. It's really changed my life. But whenever I start feeling sorry for myself about like, I was in New York one time dragging my cello around before I got this one. And I was like, oh, my life. Oh, and I just have to carry this thing around. And, and uh, it's like one of the only times I've thought it, but I also had it like a 28 pound backpack on or something. <laughs> and uh, then I saw a bass player get on the subway with a wheel on the bottom of the, of his bass. And I was like, like an upright bass. And I was like, and he looks super happy. And I thought to myself, you know what? Shut up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I really, it's so funny because I've been carrying it most of my life. Most of my life. I joke that my cello is my longest, most successful relationship um, not without its ups and downs, but, um, you know, like, it's just so funny. It's so second nature to me now. Um, yeah. So, so. that's a really good point. You know, the, the cello, that's an <laughs> unconditional love right there, but I think we can all agree. It's not as strong as the love that must exist between a person and their tuba, or as you mentioned, the double bass. I don't or, know. Or how about the harp? My God. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's what yeah. I'm saying. Those, those people are committed. That's pure. <laughs> All right. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, in addition to highlighting the cello and your excellent music, is because of 
uh, your story. So I found out about you because uh, a mutual friend and a friend of the podcast, Clarence Sharon, sent you my sent me your story, and it blew my mind. And I I have to, I want you to tell people about this story involving your former record label because it just it rings of everything that we talk to artists about on this podcast it everything in the break the business book about the dangers of record labels and the things that can go wrong particularly with the work that you create let me set the table for the listeners here and then you can take it from there so late last year sarah you were signed to a record label whose owner was convicted of a $175 million Ponzi scheme. Apparently there were FBI raids involved. Like, this is out of a movie. And in the process of this madness, your own music that you created on this label wound up being essentially held hostage by the government. Did I, did I get all that right? Like, can you tell the listeners, like, what happened there? In a, in a nutshell, that is really well done. I need to, like, I'm going to record that. And so when somebody <laughs> asks me what happened, I can just be like, hear what Ryan says. I mean, Ponzi scheme, my God. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's wild. I mean, I remember getting the phone call. I was like, you know, wearing my robe. I hadn't even finished my first cup of coffee. And I'm like, what? Uh, It actually happened on the day my album was released uh, last November, like the actual day, which luckily, I guess, it got released by the skin of its teeth. But um, the situation is so unusual because big picture, I like to preface this with, it's not just about the music business. When people are like, oh, you got screwed by the music business. I'm like, yes and no. Um, but it's so much bigger than that. It was bad business. And um, I moved to Nashville to build a team to play whatever game it is. I want to make a sustainable, you know, thriving, successful life with music, which is, you know, my calling. And, you know, being a dedicated cello player, I can't seem to put the thing down. Um, I really feel like I don't have choices as well as upon this planet to do. And a lot of us here in Nashville got caught in the crossfires of a person who was convincing others to buy and invest in silver that he didn't have. Uh, ironically, his business was called Rust Rare Coin. He had a storefront in downtown Salt Lake City. You can Google it. The whole court case is online. Um, and so are some fun TV clips that you can look up. But that doesn't mean that I didn't get stuck in a bad music business deal either. <laughs> um, I was, um, I'm very driven and I, this is all I know that I want to do with my life. And I, as wise as I am and was, I feel like I've grown so much. I've learned so much. I feel so empowered to um, just even keep my awareness about me, uh, about all of this. And I'm just so excited to be able to share my story because there are things that even though if it's presented to you really well, and if it isn't a big label, and, and in fact, that's not where I started, um, with these companies, I actually first started because I signed a management deal, my management deal. I also, um, after I'd been in that a few months, after I'd been wooed for about a year, uh, taken out and wind and dine, and we tried out some different ensembles. I got to meet incredible players. I mean, there's, there was just such incredible opportunity that I was allowed along the way for all of this. And so that, um, that's kind of been hard, like on a personal level, because I, I always told myself if I had an opportunity that was like an A&R deal, that I would really try to do the best I could to use it wisely. And I really feel like I got to pass on um, opportunity to others with the music videos, um, like such as I made with uh, Jeremy Ryan and I did the slow it down music video for him with him and, um, and almost every other one, including my underwater music video. 
I really was afforded a lot of great opportunity. However, it was all fake money. Um, so there's kind of the, like this duality to it. So I first signed a management deal and then my manager uh, encouraged me to sign this publishing deal, which was technically a separate company, although owned by the same guy out in Salt Lake City. What? I did know That's this. That's unheard of in the music in. business. That never I happens. Contact- <laughs> Right, right, exactly. I mean, yeah. and like they were two separate companies, right? So separate companies. And then after I'd been signed to those two deals, uh, those were um, several months apart. Maybe another year went by. We made a record. Oh, let's just sign this production agreement, aka a record deal. So now it's been spaced down, presented to me, and like I'm trying to use the opportunity. I'm kind of blindly drowning in opportunity in a way, but also like. I mean, I was just building this great thing and I'm so still very proud of this record and all of the stuff that we've made. And again, this like duality of it all. So, um, but it, because of the way it was presented to me, it essentially was a 360 deal. Yeah, and when you put all the contracts things together. Were, sorry? When you put all the contracts together, it effectively became a 360. Yes, because they're owned by the, the right. same parent company. <laughs> and, you know, I did my due diligence. Like I, I really did my due diligence. I've had manager relationships that have not worked out in the past. This was not my first manager relationship. I was 30 years old when I moved to Nashville. I don't think I would have been mentally ready to be here before that, you know, um, and I've, I've toured a lot since 2011. I've been solo and I've been touring the country and doing like this indie thing since 2006, kind of by the seat of my pants, just learning wherever I can, Googling whatever, and really just learning, you know, easy and a lot of times the hard way, being lots of different bands. Um, but anywho, so I had checked out these people. I had like vetted them. I had like cross-referenced. I had Googled. I, you know, like I got lawyers to help me look at these contracts, but they were all, it just um, didn't work out. And so, but really what happened in that moment that the guy out in Salt Lake City, his companies were frozen. So were, he had companies all over the country. And this is kind of what I mean when I say it's like not the whole, it's not just music business. There's like 90 employees that lost their jobs, like all over the country. And this affected so many people. So the government froze all the assets, you know, trying to sell everything. So that includes selling the management and the publishing company and the record label here, right? Which means that there's a catalog of so many artists, so many artists that are affected by this. And I don't know if everybody knows. I mean, I think everybody does know at this point. I literally just have no idea. I didn't know if I could talk about this when I found out until um, I signed my settlement agreement um, to get out of it. But when everything hit the fan, I didn't know how to move forward because in my management contract, I'm supposed to owe them 20% of everything. What does this mean for my intellectual property? You know, like if you or whatever the management agreement is for all the things, you know, that you pay them for gigs and yada, yada, you know, was I going to have to retroactively owe them anything? You know, like they funded getting me a lot of things, like opportunities and stuff like that. Like, what am I going to have to recoup? Okay. That's just the management deal. Okay. What about my publishing deal and the advance that you guys have been paying me? What about that? What about all my intellectual, what about all my publishing now? What about this? What about that? You know, am I still like, is this going to come to haunt me? And I was frozen. And I didn't know what to do at all. And, and nobody knew what to do. I called my rep at CSAC and he's been amazing. I'm so grateful, grateful, grateful for my performing rights organizations. I can't encourage artists enough to get to know their reps, go to events, especially if you're in Nashville, New York, or LA, get to know the people that are on your side. 
And um, I just, I'm so, so grateful. But so they helped me kind of navigate a little bit. I made a lot of phone calls and my longtime mentor, Carrie Estrin, stepped in and helped me as everything was crumbling. Now, what was going on with that is that, okay, so everything's frozen. Okay, but I can't, nobody else can do anything. My manager is technically out of a job and so is my publisher. So now like nobody is able to do anything. We don't know what we're able to do because the FBI has appointed government officials to deal with this case. So now it's completely out of the hands of everyone here who apparently had no idea this was going on. And, but there were signs like, and not even specific to like Ponzi scheme, but like that, like I was, I was doing too much managing when I think it was, um, very apparent that like, I don't, I was trying to normalize and, and just be like, okay, well I have this opportunity and like, you know, this is just growing pains, getting used to having a manager and this stuff and that stuff, but things weren't getting done. Balls were being dropped just left and right. And there's just what things just didn't feel right. And I can't also encourage people across the world (laughs) to pay attention to their intuition. Like I can't encourage that enough. Like there were just red flags everywhere that I was like, no, 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 you're overthinking it. And being an intelligent, smart woman, sometimes you're marginalized and you know, like you're pitted against each other, other women and just other like people, but you, you get gaslit and that's just a human thing. And so there was just a lot of subtle stuff that was going on that just balls being dropped that had the Ponzi scheme not happened, I would not have gotten out of this for as little as I did. Because if I had opened up like a conflict of interest uh, case, I it would have been much more expensive. And if the Ponzi scheme hadn't happened, I'm, you know, who knows how much leverage I would have had. And, and so it was this crazy thing where like, I was so upset at the ways I was taken advantage of also facing like myself and being like, okay, Sarah, there are red flags. You need to pay attention to that. And, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of self, uh, growth here. Um, but, and you know, it's like, and I'm trying to, it's, it's, I'm not trying to like make excuses for anyone, but you know, anyway, I just learned a lot through this and like really, um, like gave me a lot of clarity about moving forward and you can't build a house of, you know, career in a house of cards. So I'm very grateful that a lot of this happened um, because I did learn a lot, but what is a nice silver lining is really who I had to pay was, and it's not just like going to the government. Actually what was happening is they were selling off all these things so that the people that really got screwed over in this initial silver investment business got some money back. Cause there's technically somebody out there just funding my career that expected recoup, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, that's the long and short of it. Wow. <laughs> Look, I, I can hear in your voice, Sarah, that I'm hearing a lot of, there were red flags that I missed. And if I could look back, but I got to tell you, all right, I'm an entertainment lawyer. I've worked with indie <laughs> artists for a long time. And I like to think I've seen everything in terms of ways that artists can get screwed. Like I, I literally wrote a whole book on all the ways that artists can get screwed. I assure you there is no chapter for $175 million Ponzi scheme. All right. This is, this is uncharted territory. And I'm telling you, I would drive around sometimes and be like, this is a dream. I'm going to wake up. This is crazy. Oh no, it's real. (laughs) If somebody made this into a Hollywood movie and like, like if somebody just like made this story up in like a script for a movie, they would like read this and be like, this is too unreal. Nobody's going to believe this. Like this is kind of like the Bernie Madoff story. Yes. I mean, it's, this is, um, 
And I mean, it's it. I mean, and there have been a few kind of similar examples, like Lou Pearlman, the the guy who managed the Backstreet Boys, uh, had some of this on his resume to some extent in the music business. Oh, wow. So the music industry does kind of. But I mean, this is. I mean, this is on another level. Yeah, it's very strange because it was like okay, it was a balance of like yeah, like I said, like it's bad business, and but also it's good. I guess to that point, even more is like. It's so important to know your business because, you know, I don't love, I don't want to ever live in a a victim mentality. And like, I just, there was such an opportunity for me to learn. I was like, so grateful there was no confidentiality clause in the settlement miraculously because I don't want to throw anyone, (laughs) (laughs) right. And I don't want to throw anyone under any bus, but I want to empower people to be like, just like you can totally you can figure stuff out. Like you Mm -hmm. can do this. And sometimes artists, we are made to feel like you can't do it without other people. And I totally agree. You need a team. Like it's just what's so cool about living in the 2019 business music business world is that your team can be like your fans, like on Patreon, which has newsflash always been your team. So, you know, it's the fans are what, makes it possible and I'm so grateful for so much kind of support that has come out of the woodworks and like I'm I'm kind of redefining well I am very much redefining what my business looks like looks like from the ground up including you know trying to get stronger in these areas I'm not like reading business books that aren't music business and really just learning how to set up my system so now I'm in because I'm in this unique situation where oh yeah not to mention none of my admin was done for the past two years correctly so I since the settlement have been just spending time getting all of my admin back end, all my streaming, my royalties, everything just like back in house and registered correctly. And like so much stuff wasn't done. And so I'm just like really have this beautiful opportunity despite the chaos to get everything set up in a productive way so that I can delegate and then there's room to create, which is the ultimate goal, you know? No question. And I I do want to take some time and talk about what's happening now with your Patreon and your album and the website and everything. Before we do that, though, I, I do want to bring home what I think is kind of a an, an interesting, all-encompassing notion. And I think the lesson that I really want to impart to artists here, and and it's this. it's If we put the $175 million Ponzi scheme aside, and I never thought I would ever start a sentence with that phrase before, but if, even, if, even if we put this aside, as Sarah mentioned, there were a lot of things about how her career how these contracts came in her life that give rise to red flags. You know, the idea of having the publishing company, the manager, the producer that are all kind of the same person sort of pulling the strings on all of them. That does create the potential for a conflict of interest. And it takes a lot of control away from the artists. And unfortunately that structure is all too common in the music business. And so even if we put aside the $175 million Ponzi scheme, what I think Sarah's lesson shows you is the traditional way of doing things in the music business, having these massive companies controlling you, owning your music, the very art that you create, it's a recipe for exploitation. And I'm so glad, Sarah, that you have now risen above this incredible story and you know moved to this next phase where you're doing great stuff. Folks, You get, she's got a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Sarah Clanton. And also, she has a GoFundMe called Cello Brate. There it is again. A fantastic artist survival. We got the uh, mermaid stuff in there, too. And these are great ways that you can support, honestly, someone who is a 
incredible artist with fantastic, fantastic music. You can want to check that out at sarahclanton.com. Thank you so much. And while we have <laughs> you here, Sarah, I, I, I do want to sample a bit of this music, uh, play it here on the podcast so that people get excited about it and uh, go, go learn more about you. Uh, we have Slow It Down, uh, one of your latest songs here ready to play, and we're going to play it right now on the Break the Business podcast. Jump into the water, do a cannonball to make the biggest splash. Close your eyes, enjoy the ride. We'll run until we run right out of gas. We all stay so busy.
That is Slow It Down off of Sarah Clanton's latest album, Here We Are, which thankfully now belongs to her again. And we played it right here on the Break the Business podcast. Sarah, thank you so much for letting us play that. That was terrific. Thank you so much. I, I love that song. I, I, just, was, I wrote that with Kenny Fleetwood here in Nashville. And we both, I remember one day, were just feeling really just tired and realizing, you know, how self-care is so important in all of this because we can't show up to our work um, or our relationships without feeling, without feeling good first. And we have to take care to slow down. Beautiful. So you can check her out at sarahclanton.com, patreon.com slash sarahclanton and check out her GoFundMe entitled Shellobrate, a fantastic artist's revival. Sarah, this has been awesome. I've so, so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing this powerful, incredible story, which ultimately I'm happy to see is a story of redemption for you, of of rising above this terrible situation and, you know, just doing great things. And that we love that kind of stuff here on this podcast. So we love that. Before we let you go, one last question. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? You know, people ask me, what is success in the music industry? How do you have success in the music industry i'm like you know what you just don't quit you can't stop you have to keep going and if it is your purpose which is the most important thing music is my purpose and whatever your purpose is i just think it's so important to follow that because the rest will fall into place and i had a choice and it really is a choice even with this situation i could have just said oh well and my masters are gone and my publishing is gone and maybe one of those songs will get a bunch of streams and i'll get part of it but I was like, you know what? I worked really hard for this and not just the past few years, but my whole life. Like I have played the cello for 26 years and this is what I'm supposed to be here for. And I have to fight and it's a choice. And so to keep making that choice to get up over and over and over and over and over again is just so important. Don't stop getting up because you're just going to find out how strong you really are. Well, we're all here celebrating with you, Sarah. Thank you so much <laughs> for being you. on the show this week. Oh, thank you. This has been just so much fun. And thank you all for listening to the Break the Business podcast.